Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, sizzle with your science. Check out urban spying, cat intelligence and robot avatars. But first up, here's the news. Brain put machines to help humans multitask. A team from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology used near-infrared brain imaging to track blood flow and haemoglobin to detect when you're mentally overloaded and start up an autopilot to take over a task until you can manage again. The imaging system is called Functional Near-Infrared Spectroscopy and shows where the oxygen-carrying haemoglobin is changing its concentrations in your brain's blood. They had people remotely control two different robots through a maze at the same time a task which most people find difficult. As the device detected overload, the autopilot started taking over some of the navigation. The researchers found that the system successfully reduced the human workload. Although the system isn't perfect, some people struggled with robots that went off on their own or disobeyed commands. The hope is that people such as air traffic controllers who are operating at a very high level could have automated systems help them cope when they get overwhelmed with information and decisions. Other researchers have used functional magnetic resonance imaging, which causes your cells to make radio waves by jiggling them with a magnet, to let people control a robot with their thoughts. They created a small humanoid robot avatar in France and gave the remote human a thousand kilometres away in Israel the vision and sound. People soon started identifying with the robot as they moved it around with their thoughts. People just had to think of making a movement and the fMRI was able to read that intention and send the correct instruction to the robot. At the moment, fMRI mind-reading devices are very expensive, but it may not always be that way. Milk after exercise makes you stronger, faster. The study by researchers at McMaster University and published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition was conducted by the Department of Kinesiology's Exercise Metabolism Research Group, led by Stuart Phillips. The researchers took three groups of young men, 56 in total, and put them through a rigorous five-day-a-week weightlifting program over a 12-week period. After exercise, people drank either two cups of skim milk, a soy beverage with equivalent amounts of protein and energy, or an energy drink equivalent to a typical bottle of sports drink. At the end of 12 weeks, the milk-drinking group had lost two pounds of fat, while the carbohydrate beverage group lost one pound of fat. Those drinking soy lost no fat. If you drank milk, you gained more muscle than either soy or carbohydrate drinks. People drinking milk gained two and a half pounds more muscle than soy drinkers and 3.3 pounds more than people taking the energy drink. If you want to lose fat and gain muscle after weight training, drink two cups of skim milk. And the internet may be full of cats for a reason. Google's secret X laboratory have simulated a human brain by building a neural network running on 16,000 computer processors with a billion connections fed random thumbnails of images, one for each extracted from 10 million YouTube videos. 
What concept did it come up with first looking at millions of images from videos? Cats. The neural network taught itself to recognise 20,000 distinct items. While the scientists were struck by the parallel emergence of the cat images, as well as human faces and body parts in specific memory regions of their computer model, researcher Dr Ng said he was conscious about drawing parallels between his software system and biological life. His system is over 100 times smaller in terms of number of neurons and connections between them. Neurologists do hope that we may be able to use this technology to simulate at least the human visual cortex before 2020. Google have moved the neural network out of the lab and have set it to work on their searching, translation and speech recognition services. If a friend has the flu, don't get in the car with them. Queensland University of Technology has found that if you share a car with someone infected with flu, your chances of catching the illness from them are 99.9%, which is pretty close to certain. The risk of transmitting influenza over a 90-minute car trip with someone ill could be higher than travelling on a Boeing 747 for 17 hours with an infected person. The study found that the newer the car, the more airtight it is, forcing you to breathe the virus. Now, this is particularly important with the announcement that a new strain of flu, H3N2, has hit Australia's winter shores from the Northern Hemisphere recently. Over 5,000 cases have been confirmed by lab tests in Queensland and New South Wales. The Centre for Health Protection's director, Dr Jeremy McAnulty, highly recommends that pregnant women, the elderly and the chronically ill should be vaccinated. Free flu shots are available for people over 64, pregnant women, people with chronic illness, as well as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Bugger! Australians are all criminals is the assumption behind new, warrantless bugging laws being considered by a federal parliamentary committee. The government has proposed in a 63-page report that intelligence agencies and police forces in Australia be able to spy on anything a citizen has said on the phone or on the internet any time within the last two years. They want telecommunications companies to store the last two years of your electronic activities. ASIO is the Australian Federal Government Organisation for Spying on Australians, while ASIS is the Australian Government Organisation for Spying on Foreigners. The proposal is for a copy of all electronic communications to be kept for up to two years, and you can be compelled to share your passwords with government employees, even if you aren't a suspect. You'll have no right to avoid self-incrimination. Previously, wiretapping requests would have required a suspicion that the person had committed or was planning or was involved in a crime, and for a judge to give a warrant for the invasion of a person's right to privacy. Under the new proposals... The government will store all your phone calls, emails, web searches, Facebook and Twitter activity, online petition signing, GPS location, and use it against you, regardless of whether a threat to national security has been identified, and regardless of any suspicion of criminal activity. Senator Ludlam has asked the government to give some justification for the surveillance of all the citizens all the time. Law-abiding activists will have no protection from discrimination. As it is, decisions made by ASIO are not able to be questioned, for security reasons. So would you change what you say on the phone and online, knowing that some government employee could take it out of context or misunderstand and imprison you without having any legal right to know why? By an amazing coincidence, the governments of the UK and the USA are also passing legislation for retaining all electronic data for intelligence agencies and police to peruse at whim without a warrant in violation of traditional rights to privacy. If you're not suspected of a crime, should the government be looking over your shoulder? 
The funny thing is that with the rise of social networking, intelligence agencies and police agencies have never had it so good. People update the world on where they are and what they're doing voluntarily, and criminals have been caught from photos they've posted on Facebook. ASIO's proposed a new mechanism for the Director-General to authorise any crime by its agents short of sexual assault or conduct likely to result in death or serious injury or forcing someone else to commit a major crime. In order to enable agents to more effectively operate undercover, I'm glad they draw the line somewhere. A licence to commit crime just short of a licence to kill or rape. It makes you wonder why they bothered asking for anything else, but they did. ACL also wants the explicit right to interfere with lawful use of computers, including changing your files on your computers, on government computers, or anywhere. They also want the ability to stop you and search you or your home without a warrant. For the circumstances where you're threatened with a long jail sentence, or worse, for refusing to share your private passwords, you could always use a cryptographic file system known as Rubber Hose, where you can give out a password under duress that will decrypt files you don't mind them looking at while hiding the ones you do care about. Your genuinely confidential files could be hidden under any number of layers of such passwords and innocent files. Look up Rubber Hose file system on Wikipedia and you might find Julian Assange. With me in the studio is Julianne Popple, James Miller and Nathan Sinclair. So I just wanted to say regarding the cats thing that I think it speaks more, well, not so much about the neural networks themselves, but more about our habits of posting videos of our cats online. There's a lot of them. So first of all, there's a funny story about when neural networks first came out. Um, I think this was the Australian Defence Force wanted to train neural networks to spot tanks. This is a very useful thing. You get your camera out there and you're looking around and if you see a tank, an alarm goes off and we look in that direction and try and shoot it. They trained these, you know, they spent millions of dollars developing these tank spotters and what they eventually found was that their neural network was responding to overcast weather. Accidentally, every picture they had which had a tank in it was also overcast and every picture they had without a tank in it was clear. So after training this neural network for a huge amount of time, they managed to get an overcast weather spotter rather than a tank spotter. So that's the first danger in calling this, having, in saying that this thing has a concept of cat. What it really has is a distinctive response to those photos we assess as having cats in it. The other thing that's important to bear in mind is it's not just the complexity of the neural network. Simple neural networks, which it sounds like this kind of one is, simply are traversing a surface. They've got an energy function which is set by their connections within the network and they start at a point on this energy function which is set by the input they get, so the, uh, the visual input in this case. And then they're like a marble rolling downhill and eventually they settle in a little dip in this place and one of those dips we can then label cat. Now, unlike us, these neural networks just go one direction. They're downhill only. When they get down, then they stop. Now, that's not what happens to me. I don't get a problem, worry about that problem incessantly, always sort of work my way downhill. And when I've got a solution, just stop doing anything else and come to complete rest. So the, the real puzzle, the really interesting thing in modern develop, developments in neural networks is trying to get something like an energy function for neural networks like us that don't come to rest. And so, although this sounds great, um, it's a completely different ball game from trying to get a neural network that does anything like the human brain. Not quite an accurate model. Um, it's just not engaged in the same thing. So fundamentally, you could think of the idea of, of timing is left out. 
So the next level of neural network is a thing called synfire chains. And these have sort of recurring patterns going through your brain, which depend upon the relative frequency at which certain clicks occur. This kind of thing is simply going to, it's more of a categorizer. It's it does as much as your brain does when you get mail and you sort it into pigeonholes. That's what this is doing. Our brains do a heap of a lot more, and it, this is necessarily going to help us with that. Well, actually, one thing I just thought was fascinating about it is uh, that it was unsupervised. You know, the, the concepts that it picked out, it actually had uh, had came up with those concepts, categorised them, as you pointed out, but without any kind of tagging or um, sort of... Uh, input onto the original data, which I think is pretty amazing, even though it is just categorization. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Julianne reports on Sizzle, the global warming comedy, and the panel discussion on effectively communicating hot topics. Climate change. It's a topic that's been covered to just about boiling point, with many of us being sick of it. So when I heard about a screening of a global warming comedy, I had to go along. So I went along to Macquarie University to watch a film about Randy Olson trying to make a documentary about global warming with a bit of humour on the side. But what was really fascinating was the key issues raised in the panel discussion following the film screening. Namely, how do we communicate such a complex topic in a way that's engaging and doesn't bore the hell out of us? And just a warning, there is some rude language used. The following are some highlights from the hour-long discussion. Uh, what, what's success for this movie in your head? What's a good screening and what's a bad one? We actually had a really fascinating screening a couple months ago at Villanova University with a fellow named Bruce Lewinstein, who's a wonderful science communication professor. You know him? Yeah, from Cornell University. And for the first time ever, he really grilled me on this film. And he, the same sort of thing as you're saying, you know, he said, uh, what's the one action you had hoped your audience would take after watching this? What was the one thing, blah, blah, blah. And my answer to all of that is uh, nothing, you know? This is a piece of art. I did not make this with any environmental agenda. This was me as an artist looking at this issue, going over to a canvas and painting a picture. Al Gore, you know, and his group did a similar thing. They painted a very beautiful picture of all of these people now in agreement that we've got a crisis and now we're all gonna set to work and fix this thing in the next few years. But that wasn't the real picture in 2006 when they came out with that. And they tried to just wipe the skeptic movements aside and guess what? 2009, they got ClimateGate, where the world was forced to, to realize that there's enormous climate skeptic movement. So my film is much more just painting this big glop of mess on a canvas of this is the real picture right now. And now that I've gotten deeper involved in this, it's a, it's a catastrophe, at least in the United States. It's over a billion dollars squandered on this issue with enormous mismanagement and failed leadership and you know, trying to do cap and trade, and it's just, it's the biggest catastrophe to ever hit the environmental movement, and to not talk about it in those terms is to not be honest, is my feeling. So I'm still very happy with this film because it's just a really ugly portrait that you don't walk away feeling all happy and, well, wow, we're all on top of this thing, we're now in agreement. That's the truth of the situation. Can I ask, Randy, if you were making the, a film today and instead of just being an artist, you were making it as an advocate for action on climate change, yeah. what sort of movie would you make today? 
You know, I don't even know what I'd make for a movie. The one thing I know I would do is create variation. If you study natural selection, you learn that the crucial thing is variation. What this climate movement has had in the United States, and maybe here as well, is an enormous amount of conformity. The foundations have gotten together, totally risk averse, and supported the same boring people to produce the same boring media. And when these guys in the UK did this thing a couple years ago called the No Pressure um, PSA, that they made this crazy little one minute PSA where this you know, school teacher asked all the kids if they were going to reduce emissions, and two said they weren't interested, so she hit a button where they both exploded and <laughs> splattered their guts all over the classroom. The American environmental com community rose up in indignation and said, we, we completely disassociate ourselves with this effort. As opposed to saying, that's not our cup of tea, but at least they're trying something different. They're trying to expand the variation. I mean, you know, to answer that question, I would create a whole bunch of little brush fires of all kinds of crazy things, some of which embarrass you and are just a waste of money and have the courage to stand up to the public and say, yeah, we wasted some money here. How do we get to a point where scientists are taken seriously by politicians, the rest of the community? How do we get that on the page that science is something to listen to that's important? I was down at the Academy of Sciences last week and it used to be the fact that the Australian Cabinet would meet at the Academy on occasion. There was nothing unusual 40 or 50 years ago for the Prime Minister to call the President of the Academy and, and to ask for advice. None of that happens today at all. Instead what happens is the Academy sits by itself down in the Shine Dome in Canberra and the politicians sit in Parliament House where they are besieged by lobbyists. You know, and these people come in with tailor-made solutions to every problem a politician might face, which may be utterly ascientific, they may fly in the face of scientific orthodoxy, and so the politicians just don't have a chance these days you know, to, to, to speak to the scientists who may say, I'll come back in a, in a few weeks with, a, with some thoughts for you, not a tailor-made perfect solution like the lobbyists have. The scientists don't realise that there's actually a war on. So I think we've got to understand why, first of all, why the conflict's happening, and the scale of it, and then try to formulate our responses around that. Let me ask a question here. How many people have heard of the Coney 2012 campaign? Mm. Oh, look at that. Gee, many Christmas. There's your proof. Here's the problem. And here's kind of the sad news for what you're, you're asking right here, which is that um, I'm being drawn off into the world of public health and the business world because they, they are willing to pay money. The business world understands you've got to pay a lot of money for good communications. And those Coney 2012 people, when the, when the numbers came out, turns out they spent 50% of their whole campaign was spent on communications. It costs a lot of time, money, energy, and resources in today's world to communicate effectively. And the scientists world is still down there like, all right, we'll, we'll spend maybe 3 to 5% of our budget. It needs to be 50% of your budget needs to go to communication, and they don't want to hear that. So that's, you know, that's why they're not communicating effectively. Yeah, I guess I, I want to put a slightly more optimistic uh, spin on it, I suppose, um, simply because I've been doing climate change science and impacts of climate change for over 20 years. And when I started in this field, nobody talked about carbon footprints, nobody talked about much about global warming at all, really. Um, and having been in it that long, the amount of change just in the language in the public and the awareness in the public um, is, is orders of magnitude more than it was 20 years ago. And I know everybody's frustrated that we don't get overnight change, 
but we've actually had exponential change in public awareness over the last 20 years. The other thing I'd say is that I'm actually in a group called Climate Scientist Australia, which formed about three years ago with the express purpose of going as climate scientists and talking to politicians. And we've had three visits to federal parliament, visits to most of the state parliaments. And when we talk one-on-one -on -one to politicians, most of them actually know quite a lot. Most of them are actually quite bright. There's a number of exceptions to that, of course. But they do get it. Most of them do get it. And I think the other thing is that there's this tremendous grassroots movement about climate change that is happening in despite our leaders, not because of them. And I, and I think we've got to keep hold of that. But am I allowed to argue with you? Um, sure. That's why we're here. <laughs> Can, pardon me if I poop on your optimism. Um, but in a similar perspective, um, not 20 years, if, we, if I were to go back 25 years ago and tell a group of scientists that in 25 years we're going to end up in a circumstance where the brain trust of the entire planet says that we have got a major climate problem and the general public is just going to say, so what, and we don't buy it. Nobody would have believed that 25 years ago. It is surreal, the circumstance we're in today. Having been a scientist back in 1987, uh, I, you never would have gotten me to accept that a day would come when what we have today. And that's where I do find it beyond belief. And I don't know at what point, you know, finally people get panicked enough that the scientists, that knowledge is no longer in control of our fate. That's kind of disturbing. How can you recharge, because I'm a believer, but how can you recharge those of us who are believers but have kind of lost interest in it? D did you not get the impression that I'm equally bored with the topic? <laughs> <laughs> did I fail on that, that note? But, but, you know, as yeah. a science communicator, where, where's, where's the next way to keep people engaged? It is storytelling. That's the be-all and the end-all of it. That is the only hope. And storytelling at all different scales and an appreciation and understanding of it that it's not just epic two-hour stories. It's all the way down to five-second films. Anybody here ever visit the website Five Second Films? It's brilliant. These are filmmakers in five seconds who tell stories that have a beginning, middle, and an end. What I think is terrific about this film is that it's an attempt to address that. It's an attempt to acknowledge it. But, you know, it's very difficult to do it. Uh, we've got to just keep trying different tricks. That, that's More love stories, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, th this film should be buried in dozens and dozens of crazy climate, wild movies and variation, but it's not. You know, again, it's, back, it's what you're just saying there. It's variations and just not happening. Yeah, look, I get bored shitless with climate change most of the time <laughs> because I live, breathe it, work it 24 hours a day. And I think people just want to hear about opportunities and solutions. They want to hear a positive story. And whether they believe it or not, and say, well, look, you know, we're transitioning into a new world, whether you like it or not, and there's some good things about that world, and you can be prosperous, and you can be secure, and you can have a good future, and these are the opportunities and solutions that we can present to you. So I think the positive messages about... The solutions to climate change have to now start overwhelming the negative messages about the risk. We know that storytelling is this tool that you can reach inside of people and create motivation. Uh, the one thing I would differ on is you said we need more positive storytelling and I really don't agree with that. We just need storytelling of all different sorts. You can tell really negative stories and if they're well told you can motivate people just as much as the positive stories. It's just storytelling has a potential hypnotic element to it if it's used effectively. And it just, it's very difficult, though. That's the problem. And the science world really is diametrically opposed in their approach to the world in general that, that handicaps them on this topic of, of storytelling. 
I was just wondering um, why, especially the scientists on the panel might feel like I do, that people who are sceptics seem to be so much better at drawing on the misunderstandings and um, sometimes just the lack of knowledge that the everyday person has. And why aren't we doing better jobs as scientists in explaining the basics so that sceptics can't use that lack of understanding and knowledge for their own gain? I, I just think the story the sceptics have got to tell is so simple and so reassuring, you know. There's not a problem. We're not doing anything wrong with the environment. There's no need to work together as a world. Terribly hard thing, you know, uh, to deal with. There's no need to change anything. You know, it's a simple beguiling issue. Whereas when the scientists talk, it's about probabilities, it's about real risks, it's about cost, about polluting the environment. And, and it's a complex story. So, of course, it's harder to sell. doesn't mean it's impossible. And could I just say that I think we've done an incredibly good job so far in terms of shifting towards a clean energy economy. Whatever the science of climate change and whatever has done, you know, around the world people are acting on this now. And, and, and Leslie said something very important, that the public now is not interested in the problem as much, it's accepted as much as it's ever going to be. You know, the major new industry developed there, and it'll be an export industry for that state. Here we lead in New South Wales in solar technology, another great opportunity if we want to grab it. So that's the sort of stuff I think that people need to hear now. This panel discussion featured Dr Rod Lamberts, Deputy Director of Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at ANU, Ms Safina Uberoy, Independent Documentary Filmmaker, Professor Leslie Hughes, Co-Director Climate Futures and Australian Climate Change Member at Macquarie University, and Professor Tim Flannery, Macquarie University Panasonic Chair of Environmental Sustainability and Australian Climate Change Chief Commissioner at Macquarie University. That was Julianne Popple telling us how sizzling science can tickle your funny bone. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2scr.com, that's diffusion at 2scr.com, and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SCR studios, or if you're not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Julianne Popple, James Miller and Nathan Sinclair. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> you.